Hey, y'all, how's it going? Welcome to the show. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Yeah, man. Um, I got a website. I think it's working today. Yeah. ScottHorton.org. Keep all my interview archives there. More than 4,000 of them going back to 2003. Covering almost exclusively foreign policy stuff for you. Uh, down to the nitty gritty. It's all there at uh, ScottHorton.org. Join up the chat room. Hey, chat room guys. How's it going, man? Uh, ScottHorton.org slash chat. If you uh, just put in a fake name and a captcha, you're in there. Uh, if you like using external type chat applications, then it's a IRC free node chat. Hashtag Scott Horton show. Hashtag Scott Horton show. If you want to hang out in the chat room, argue about anarcho-capitalism or give each other advice about restoring El Caminos or whatever it is that you think is fun, then join in the chat room there. ScottHorton.org slash chat. All right, good. Uh, let me see about that. Um, I got no guests. I couldn't even think of anybody to invite on the show today. I don't even think I sent any emails out. Oh, Ramsey Barut. I meant to get back to Ramsey Barut. Oh, yeah, and I invited Lawrence Wilkerson on. I'll explain why in a second. But damn, I completely spaced out on Ramsey, dude. Hang on. Where's his email from yesterday? He emailed me back too late yesterday. All right, we're going to get this done at the break. I want to I want to talk with Ramsey about this thing. His article on uh, the hunger striking Palestinians is on antiwar.com right now actually. Um yeah. Otherwise though, uh tons of news to cover, of course, politics, but also uh, lots of wars and important things to know. And I've been having fun with it. It seems like you guys like it too, right? Doing some phone calls. You want to do some phone calls? It's Friday. I got open lines. Stack them up. 512-271-4836. 512-271-4836. You can talk about uh, the debate last night. You can talk about any of the wars, the police state. Ask me whatever questions you want or accuse me of whatever you feel like or whatever. El Camino. No, what does El Camino mean in Spanish? Canarchist in the chat room. Tell me. See, the chat room's up and going, man. They're talking about El Caminos. They're translating. I think. Yeah. ScottHorton.org slash chat. Go join up with them. All right. Hey, man, you know what? I guess Ian uh, has told me before he doesn't like it when I play music on the show. But I guess I'd be willing to bet Ian knows this guy. And it's probably had him on his show. And uh, anyway, it's it's great, man. It's anarcho-capitalism. Have you ever heard of an anarcho-capitalist rap song that wasn't by a rich white college kid? I haven't either. But here's one. It's a backwards and outnumbered presents Ripa Raps number two. The ANCAP rap. And in fact, here, let me get it right because the guy's got a name. It's Eric D. July. And check this out, man. It's really good. Yo, 
The politician are easily mention a lie Cause he counting you don't know the truth You tend to probably why you swiping left at the voter booth Emotional cast, voting on wag quotables It's supposed to be a polling move You vote for who is owning you Y'all must be too dumb or blind to see it get robbed by some guys This heathens, your mind's defeated, you high Cause you think this guy's a genius You let him tax you for breathing minus the breathing You're a jack wagon, so beat it So be it, I'm never against some nice movement But if the state call it free, it got a price to it You claim to be against more slavery But yet you want the state to confiscate Bruce of labor and it's fake to me The government's an 18 trillion dollars worth of debt Forgive me if I don't trust him with my chick Pissing money by the sick and it's dumb kinda What kind of dumb out of clown, gladly fun, irresponsible Warmongers. Democrats act like they the party of peace While Obama's bombing babies in the streets And it's weak, they sending drones blowing up hospitals and doctors Not a lot of difference from a Bush than Barack Cause it's very evident the current president is not retarded He's smart like a con artist Bombarded all the airwaves for flopping like a dolphin Like the White House with rainbows So they could get the gay vote and say no I just see right through the foolishness We vote for who the ruler is The piss when dudes abusing it The state is cry about police brutality But wait a minute, that statism You made that bed so late in it When eight stitches apply To some black guy with a busted lip and black eye Who was beat up by some whack cop Cause he didn't wanna comply And you can say that black lives matter But why we vote for a democrat Who won't bigger government than that Pro-black buffoon, I laugh cause you callin' people coons Look at what your voting habits do Democrats and white liberals are on a you Run one of your cities into the ground And I'd assume that you get it now They've been holding offices to sixes now You can't afford them into power You get nothing out of how Stupid can you be? Republicans might suck But they don't hold now office in black cities The government has forever opposed black folks Okay, let's go further expand that note from Jim Crow, slave codes and black holes, the state has always been used to keep us in a lasso. Yet you got these foolish black intellectual dummies making money off cunning blacks funny. On MSNBC speaking on how you need government, then turn around and telling you that they the ones oppressing you, you better move. Social justice warrior activists, I write them off. They more PC than Microsoft. Bit of bit, I'm sick of it. Oh yeah, Bernie Sanders is an economic illiterate. Sorry, but I can't forget this old hag is so sad. You're so famous, it's almost like you get a bone off taxation and that payments. Democratic socialist nonsense. Let's call him what he is. He's a communist with no common sense. Obsessed with Scandinavian nations who ain't got a bigger population than the DM Dub. That's a fact statement. Bernie's the only one that cares, and I don't understand economics, so I blame the problems on the free market and the one percent. Tax cuts and trickle down doesn't work. I know I don't know and I should probably do some research I have a right to all things Healthcare, welfare, I have no problem being owned by government Well I do You can say corporation 90 times repeating it Impaired Robert Reich, Paul Krugman and Nikizian But that don't change the fact that you just highlight all your ignorance Intellectually lazy, can't back what you fibbing in You stupid yet loyal Existence of the state is immoral You bending on your knees for who is royal Not surprising Claim to be humanitarian But ideas are forced by the monopoly of violence It's fake for the government to give it must take the social contract is what you say but wait i gave you no consent to take my wage so that means that that's not a voluntary exchange you stole from me your money's your money i don't owe you a dime just because you exist not ish so get over it admit it your ideas ain't good as you say if they need to be enforced by the state okay and that's the end cap rap the government has a monopoly of force and violence if they don't have that they're not the state so you can call yourself a humanitarian, but if you want the government to force something across the board, how can you be if that is through coercion and initiation of violence? Or they're sending their goons to confiscate your private property if you don't comply. It is involuntary, thus making it immoral. And no, somebody leaving isn't the way to opt out of this quote-unquote social contract that you guys like to throw out there. It is still force. 
So cut the gimmick, this whole humanitarian, you think you're humanitarian? No, you're a tyrant and a sucker. <laughs> awesome. Man, isn't that great? That was great. I almost turned it down a couple times, like, all right, all right, you got to hear a little of it. No, that's good, man. I keep playing it. Um, yeah, there you go. That's, uh, get it right again, man. I got it right a minute ago. Eric D. July. That's his handle on Twitter, too. Eric D. July. The ANCAP rap. Find it on YouTube and what have you. Oh, man, heater's on. Making background noise, huh? Can you guys hear that? Oh, I bet you can if you're wearing headphones. Look at that. It's only at, uh, negative 57 or something. Oh, negative 54 is the quiet in here. That's terrible. Terrible. Well, I'll go turn it off here in a second. Here in 15 seconds when the music starts playing. All right, so anyway, I'm goofing around. It's Friday. I'm wishing it was Saturday already. But uh happy to take your calls. I got tons of uh, things to say about all kinds of horrible things going on and God knows what and whatever. I got a little bit of good news for you, too. Uh, but if you guys want to talk about the wars, talk about politics, whatever it is, uh, go ahead, line up some calls or write the number down for later or something. 512-271-4836. 512-271-4836. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, you own a business? Maybe we should consider advertising on the show. See if we can make a little bit of money. My email address is scott at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. What other radio show you know plays gangrene for bumper music, huh? Unless somebody's out there ripping me off. Uh, Yeah, man, I'm Scott. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. And <clears throat> so I got a little bit of business to discuss with you people, and it's important. So, here's the deal. Um, almost a year ago, last March, did a fundraiser, Kickstarter, for the YouTube project. To put all the interviews up on YouTube. A bunch of you donated more than we were asking. It got up to 25, no, 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 to 1,500. Real quick. Uh, and then, so we stopped and said, hey, alright, thanks everybody. Well, right around then, the server started crashing all the time, I know you've noticed. And uh, so it became apparent that, man, we really should have done the Kickstarter for new servers first and the YouTube project second. But, hey, we already did it, and I can't really do another Kickstarter until like, I at least get this thing done. So we hired the guy, and the, the servers weren't all the way dead yet. So we hired a guy to do the YouTube project, but he flaked out and never did it. He seemed like a nice guy. I think he had some things came up in his life, man, that made it impossible for him to do it, was what happened with him. So, nothing personal, in case you're listening, dude. Uh, anyway, and so uh, so that kind of never happened. Um, but then, uh, a volunteer came out of the woodwork and said, Hey, man, 
uh, I would like to help you with your YouTube project. You don't have to pay me anything. I'm happy to do it. What do you need done? So I gave him the outline of what the job was, and he immediately started doing all the uh, preparatory work, basically, uh, finding all the broken links to the interviews. Uh, this is too much explanation, but I don't know what to leave out, so I'll just tell you. Part of the problem with the YouTube project is they won't let you drag and drop a damn thing. So it all has to be uploaded in the proper order from 2003 on. Otherwise, it's going to be a problematic problem. So some of the there are dead links and missing files and stupid crap from mostly 2004 and five, I think, uh, that I still haven't been able to get entirely taken care of. And part of the problem there is the server keeps breaking. So my guy who does the server for me, the priority is always getting the site back up rather than finding these missing files, which is a separate thing we got to do here quick. So anyway, my server's been getting so bad for so long now, it's completely dying, and um, and I got the, the YouTube guy is a volunteer who's going to do it for free, and to my satisfaction, he's proven that he's definitely going to do it, and he's definitely capable of doing it. He told me he already has the scripts all ready to go. He's just waiting on me to finally let him do the thing. I got to find the missing files first is all. So what I decided to do, was take the Kickstarter money and put it toward the servers. And the deal is the servers, they were bought yesterday. They are now being shipped, and they are on their way to my server guy's house. They were 2500 bucks, almost exactly. It was 24 or whatever the hell. It was very close to exactly $2,500 for two new servers and backup hard drives and all of that stuff. Okay, so that's going to solve our server problems from now on. Um, so... There's a problem, pseudo, kind of, sort of problem, which is that I raised the money for the YouTube project, not for new servers. So there's a possibility that some of you might be angry that your money that was for a YouTube project went to servers instead. i got to allow for that possibility. So if anybody does have a problem with it, I take full responsibility, never mind the guy that helped me do the Kickstarter or anything like that. It's all on me. I made the decision to, to do it. And... Um, I will refund your part of the money back if that's what you wish. But I rationalize that it's not really cheating or screwing one over or anything like that because it's a perfect no harm, no foul situation. Once we get the servers in and get those missing files found, then finally we'll be able to get the YouTube project done anyway. And until we get the new servers, we can't even really get the YouTube project done. So it's been a catch-22, and I think finally we're now breaking the catch-22. And... I could see how from someone's point of view it's like cheating or something. But on the other hand, I've gotten emails from people, more than two or three, I think, saying, for God's sake, man, spend the Kickstarter money I donated on new servers and do the YouTube project later. And I sent out a mass email to all of you people who did donate to the Kickstarter last night explaining all of this and explaining why I hope it's okay and explaining why if you think it's not, just tell me, and I will absolutely refund your part of the Kickstarter thing if you have a problem. So, does that sound cool to everybody? I hope it does. So, and then the deal, and then there's more. Um, the servers were twenty five hundred bucks, but my server guy he chipped in five hundred, so that leaves two thousand. Well, the Kickstarter money was almost thirteen hundred, like twelve hundred and high change, right? So, it's basically, call that thirteen hundred dollars. That's it was fifteen hundred dollars, but there was. The Kickstarter company fees plus the shipping costs for the goodies that everybody got when I uh, sent everybody their goodies for uh, being donators to the project. So 
that subtracted left us with 1300 It was about 100 each for their costs and for our uh, shipping and handling crap there. So uh, 1300 if uh, you know, once we get that money uh, sent to the guy that spent the 2500 already, then we'll only owe him, I will only owe him $700. Uh, and then the good news there is I have another guy that came in and said, I will put up matching funds up to 700 But we don't need that, right? All we need is for him to put up matching funds up to $350. So if you guys can donate $350, then I got another guy who will match your $350. And then... That money will go to uh, to pay back the guy who just put down the 2500 on the servers for us yesterday. And it's for us, right? Because what are you going to do without the greatest talk radio show in all world history? Mine. Uh, and again, you know, I think, again, we couldn't do the YouTube project until we got new servers. And we got a guy lined up to knock the YouTube project out immediately, virtually. You know, he's just waiting for me to pull the trigger on it. All I got to do is find a few missing files, whatever, which we're going to do in the transfer over to the new server. We're going to get all that straight, and then we're going to pull the trigger on the YouTube thing, and then all of it will be done, and so I hope nobody's mad. It should be fine. Because I know from y'all's tweets and y'all's emails and from what Angela tells me and everything, it's when the server is down that everybody's most upset, and you probably care about that a lot more than a damn YouTube project. Although the YouTube project, I think, promises to be awesome, man. Hopefully, assuming there's not too much bumper music in some of these files, uh, you know, enough to get me canceled off of there. See, I think they have a problem with ads, too, right? You're only supposed to run their ads, not your own ads that their ads run over. So that could be a problem, too, man. I don't know what I'm going to do. But we're going to try it anyway. So there you go. That's the uh, Kickstarter update. That's the YouTube project update. That's the uh, server project update. And the the good news is I only need y'all to donate 350 bucks, which is good. And the other good news is the new servers, the 2016 model new servers with all their backup hard drives and all that crap, they are being shipped to my server guy's place right now. And all of that will be, you know, kicked over within, I don't know, a week or whatever it is. And then we will not have these server outages and website downages and uh, podcast feed interruptages again. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at Audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Yeah, I said you could uh, help chip in to cover the cost of those servers, but I didn't tell you how. Go to scotthorton.org slash donate. 
scotthorton.org slash donate. And um, if you hate PayPal, there's Google Wallet. Also, there's um, a mailing address there if you want to send a check. Probably um, send me an email and let me know. I already got an email from Bill uh, here in the break saying he's good for 50 So uh, trying to raise 350 bucks to cover the gap, basically, in the cost of the new servers here. I got matching funds. Um, he offered more, but I only need uh, matching funds up to 350 bucks. So we're 50 down, need 300 more. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. Only if you have some money and you're sick and tired of the server crashing all the time. It can be a real problematic problem, you know? It can be. All right. Um, in the chat room, someone asked about the rap. Uh, I'm sure probably many people are, you know, missed it. It's the ANCAP rap, right? Anarcho-capitalist. The ANCAP rap. You can't forget that. Just Google it up. It'll come right up on YouTube. And I'm sorry I keep forgetting the guy's name. I only learned it last night. It's uh, July something. What is it called? Hang on. Eric D. July. Eric D. July is uh, the guy doing it. The ANCAP rap. That's pretty good there. And then in the chat room, someone's wondering an interview I did about a month ago laying out the Middle East situation from then until now. I'm thinking then, meaning probably, you know, the beginning of Iraq War II, something like that. Probably, my friend, you are thinking of uh, Jason Stapleton's interview of me. Um, I think, you know, the original question was, geez, how did ISIS come about? And I said, well, let's go back to 2003. And explain some things. That's probably the best version of me telling that story recently that I can think of. Jason Stapleton and Scott Horton. That's probably what you're looking for there. I interviewed him once. And then he interviewed me. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, there you go. He says, yeah, that's the one. So there you go. And, uh, yeah, there you go. I think that's pretty much right. And, in fact... Well, first of all, let me tell you the phone number again. If anybody wants to call on the show, we do calls, man, talk about things. I know, if you're hosting a radio show and you do calls, you're supposed to ask a question, right? So um, how about that, Colin Powell? I don't know, man. You make up your own rhetorical question, call and answer it. Um, but today is the 13th anniversary of Colin Powell's big speech at the United Nations. I have some funny clips that you might want to hear along those lines. Let's play them here. The White House says it can prove that Saddam Hussein does have weapons of mass destruction, claiming it has solid evidence. The White House insisted again today it does have solid evidence that Saddam Hussein is hiding an arsenal of prohibited weapons. They might fight dirty using weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, or radioactive. There are ties between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. Anthrax, smallpox, dirty bomb, dirty bomb, Iraq-Al-Qaeda connection. Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda share the same goal. They want to see, both of, them, both of them want to see Americans dead. President essentially giving Saddam 48 hours to get out of Dodge. War now seems all but inevitable. Short of a bullet to the back of his head or he, he leaves the country, uh, war is inexorable. Well, I think that's exactly right. War is inevitable, and it is approaching inexorably. Is war with Iraq inevitable right now? I think it's 95% inevitable. You, at this point, right now, tonight, don't see any other option but war. Do you? I'm asking you, Ambassador. <laughs> I, I agree. I don't think there's a viable option for the administration at this point. We're way too far out front in this. Send us over there, guys. Let's get on with it. Let's get it over with. Showdown Iraq. 
If America goes to war, turn to MSNBC and the experts. I must say, I was trying to think of, I was trying to think of something that would be appropriate to say on an occasion like this. And as is often the case, the best you can come up with is something that Shakespeare wrote for Henry V: "Wreak havoc and unleash the dogs of war." There is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Botulin, VX, sarin, nerve agent. Iraq and Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. Iraq and Al-Qaeda. Terrorism. Cyber attacks. Nuclear program. Biological weapons. Cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. Chemical and biological weapons. Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. President Bush has said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Tony Blair has said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Donald Rumsfeld has said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Richard Butler has said they do. The United Nations has said they do. The experts have said they do. Iraq says they don't. You can choose who you want to believe. Did uh, uh, Colin Powell close the deal today in your mind for anyone who has yet objectively to make up their mind? Uh, I think for anybody who analyzes the situation, uh, he has closed the deal. This irrefutable, undeniable, incontrovertible evidence today, Colin Powell brilliantly delivered that smoking gun today. Colin Powell's outstanding today. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it was lockstep. It was so compelling. I don't see how anybody at this point cannot support this effort. He made a wonderful presentation. Yeah, I thought he made a great case for the purpose of disarmament. It was devastating. I mean, and overwhelming. Overwhelming abundance of the evidence. Point after point after point. With, he just flooded the terrain with, with, with uh, data. It's the end of the argument phase. America has made its case. The Powell speech has, has moved the ball. I think case is closed. Oh, man. Remember those days? Were you too young to remember those days? That's what it was like. Oh, everyone agrees. We all know this, don't we, everyone? What a bunch of crap. Now, I'll tell you a story. I've told this one before. Well, I've been doing this a while. I was painting a house with my friend Adam. In fact, we weren't even painting. We were sanding and scraping and caulking and preparing to paint a house. And listening to Powell's UN speech on NPR on my truck's radio. My very same little old truck I still got. And every single thing he said, I refuted it to Adam. In fact, somehow I should I should find Adam and get a recording and like have him vouch for me that no, really that happened. Every single assertion Powell made, I said, that is such a lie, and here's why. I know it's a lie. Why? Because I read antiwar.com, dude. I read antiwar.com. I already know that this has been debunked, this has been debunked, this has been debunked, and why and how and everything. And the only part of it that I didn't know was about Zarqawi. But even Powell admitted in the speech that Zarqawi was up in Kurdistan. So how the hell is he supposed to be friends with Saddam if he's up in American-protected, autonomous Iraqi Kurdistan? So he admitted he was lying as he was telling the story. And then, of course, it came out that Zarqawi wasn't working for Osama either. Saddam hadn't given him a peg leg. Saddam had put a death mark on his head and instructed the Mukbarat to kill him. Except that he was up in American-protected autonomous Kurdistan, not down in Baghdad, getting leg surgery. 
He wasn't, he wasn't a link to Saddam and he wasn't a link to Osama. And it's an, it's actually quite surprising how much good journalism there is about this. Jim Miklaszewski at NBC News, I don't even know if he broke the story or not, but he did pretty damn good work on it. Well sourced work, but it was followed up by more sources than you would think. I think it's been a while since I, you know, looked at it, but I remember finding so many sources. So well reporting about how the military had begged George Bush over and over and over again to let them kill Zarqawi at his camp up in American protected autonomous Kurdistan before the start of the war. They knew who he was and they knew that he was really dangerous and they knew that once the regime fell and, uh, you know, Chaos ensued that this guy's Arkawi could be a real problem, but Bush needed him for his talking point. He needed Zarqawi to exist so that he could lie to you and your mom and your dad and make you think that they're protecting you by invading Iraq instead of getting the entire 21st century off on the wrong foot for all of mankind, which is what they were actually doing. Hey, all Scott here. On average, how much do you think these interviews are worth to you? Of course, I've never charged for my archives in a dozen years of doing this, and I'm not about to start. But at patreon.com slash Show, you can name your own price to help support and make sure there's still new interviews to give away. So what do you think? Two bits? A buck and a half? There are usually about 80 interviews per month, I guess, so take that into account. You can also cap the amount you'd be willing to spend in case things get out of hand around here. That's patreon.com slash Show. And thanks, y'all. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I should have said that um, those clips came from War Made Easy. Great documentary by Norman Solomon. War Made Easy. Those uh, All those uh, montages of clips there. My cheat sheet. Just so you know. Um, but, yeah. So, um... Now, as I said, uh, well, you know how I gotta try to sum up something real quick before I gotta go out to the break there. And, uh, so what I was saying, I was talking about how they lied about Zarqawi, how they were pretending that there was a link there between Saddam and Osama when they knew they were lying. They just wanted to have their war. But which raises the question, obviously, among regular people, well, then why would they do it then? I've told this one before a million times, but I, I'll never forget this. I think it's so instructive and important. I was a cab driver. I had a guy in my cab who was no dummy. He was a college-educated guy. He was a millionaire in the construction business or something like that. But you could tell he was thoughtful and intelligent and well-informed, just completely all wrong. And not not really well-informed because he had a different interest in life, you know, basically. But he was exposed to enough information he should have known better. That's what I mean. And I got an argument with him, like a well-intentioned, like nice, nobody got mad type argument about the situation. And I was trying to tell him, listen, man, you know, there is a lot of propaganda among the neocons in the media. But I 
I defy you. I, I demand when you go inside, you search, and I guarantee you, you will not find Condoleezza Rice or George W. Bush or Colin Powell accusing Saddam Hussein of doing 9-11. And this guy's going, oh, come on. Of course he did 9-11. And here was his reasoning. It was the same reasoning as tens and tens and maybe more than a 100 million other Americans. If Saddam didn't do 9-11, well, then why are we attacking him then? And then he's supposed to believe that this cab driver is the one who knows better and the entire consensus of every professional in America, everyone with, you know, frat ties or everyone who's a part of society who thinks that, you know, all this is for them, they all believe but the idiot cab driver is the one who knows better. It just couldn't be. But that was his rationalization. It wasn't any information. It was just a rationalization. Why in the ro- world would we be attacking him? But you know me. I turn it right around. If he did 9-11, how come we bombed Afghanistan immediately, but we've gone begging France and Russia for a U.N. resolution and wait a year and a half to attack Iraq? Why didn't they just nuke Baghdad off the face of the earth on the 12th if they were going to make the case that Saddam was behind it? They didn't ask the U.N. for a resolution to go to Afghanistan. They said, we're defending ourselves from the guys who attacked us. Boom. So why all the screwing around and weapons of mass destruction and trying to bribe the French and the Russians to get on board and all the rest of this? Well, I don't know. Yeah, because Saddam didn't do it. And because other than Dick Cheney, the administration isn't even claiming he did, dude. But that was the position of the American, that was the American mindset at the time, was, I mean, what are you saying? Think about what you're saying. You're saying the president is exploiting an attack by one group in order to attack other powers, had nothing to do with it? I mean, give me a break. That's crazy. They wouldn't do that. You're talking about the president of the United States? After America's been attacked, he's going to exploit it as though he did it, might as well have done it himself? For Christ's sake, that couldn't be right. The reasoning went. And yet all you had to do was look into it on the most superficial level. Let's see. Saddam's got a mustache. Osama's got a beard. Let's start there. Saddam's wearing a beret and is and a three-piece suit when he's not wearing olive green. You, you know, uh, military fatigues. Like a Westerner. Like a secular, atheist, Baathist, nationalist. And then here's Osama in his robe. Declaring that he doesn't mind dying. Quite unlike Saddam, who very much minded dying. For God's sake. Uh, you know. Anyone, well, here's the proof that anyone who really wanted to be honest about it and try to see through it could. Half the population was against the war. I mean, until the dawn of the war. Right before, as soon as the war was starting, then support for it goes up, because or else you're guilty of treason if you don't support the war. Once the war you opposed begins, that's the way the narrative went. But if you go back, you know, a month before the war, six weeks before the war, people were against it. In Austin, Texas, it's a liberal town, but still it's Texas. There were no less than 50,000 people down there marching February the 15th and March the 15th, 2003. 
And all they had to do was be basically Democrats and no better than to trust a bunch of Houston oil men to start a war in the Middle East. Right. They were just just skeptical enough to go. What are you kidding me? Dick Cheney's telling the truth about Saddam being friends with Osama trying to kill us. Couldn't be. They just didn't buy it. There was nothing. You know, you'd have had to want to buy it. For your own social psychology reasons. You'd have had to want to buy it. For anyone else, it was stupid bullshit. I remember my friend Fernando. He was, he's just a regular guy, man. Wasn't a real political guy. He goes, you know what? My dad was some minor functionary at the UN many years ago. And so I know just enough about the Middle East to know that Saddam is not friends with Osama, okay? These are different things altogether. Maybe you got your problems with Saddam, but don't give me this BS. And, but then the next question raises, whoa, wait a minute. The president and all of his men are trying to BS me and make me believe that Saddam and Osama are in cahoots. And that this war, uh, an aggressive invasion of Iraq begun by us, is somehow spun as self-defense from those who attacked us. And I know from my dad being a minor UN functionary that that's not okay either, man. All you had to do was be a regular guy with the slightest bit of knowledge of the region. I mean, hell, uh, George Friedman, isn't that his name? The guy from Stratfor? He was a regular guest on 590 AM radio here in Austin, Texas. He's a conservative. He's a national security state guy. Stratfor, right? That's a private CIA. And he was saying, no, I'm sorry. I know your radio station is in the business of selling this war for money, Mark Caesar. <clears throat> but... Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I happen to know enough to advise that this is not a good idea at all. And because it's going to destabilize the region and cost a trillion dollars and spread terrorism, and Saddam is no real threat to us, not like they say, and all the reasons. And that's not because George Friedman is a commie or a liberal or a libertarian or a peacenik. It's just because he's not an idiot. And he didn't have, I guess he didn't see a vested interest in mongering that war. And he would advise against it. But because of who he was, Mark Caesar, uh, who, you know, runs AM, uh, uh, KLBJ AM radio in town is like, dude, this guy is the, the greatest foreign policy expert in Austin. Who am I supposed to get instead of him? He is the foreign policy expert in Austin. He's acceptable to conservative Republicans. He's a national security state guy. And Mark Caesar would politely disagree. But he would let George Friedman get on there and go, dude, let me count the reasons why this doesn't make sense. Day after day after day. Same thing for Colonel David Hackworth. David Hackworth, he was more on uh, 550 AM in San Antonio and 1200 AM in San Antonio. And he would get on there and just absolutely lambast the neocon, uh, you know, wimp, egghead, think tank guys and all the perfumed prince generals who are willing to lie us into the war. And of course, David Hackworth's entire spin on the entire game was that this is a betrayal of the enlisted man who signed up to defend this country. Not to start wars and destroy everything. And so that was his entire thing was he's Hackworth, uh, Colonel Hackworth, soldier for the truth, protecting the enlisted men from the evil men in government who would prey on them and exploit them and waste their lives for lies. And conservative American, you know, politics said, screw you, Hackworth. What do you know? Yeah, what did Hackworth know about it? 
And I remember him telling Hannity, no, you close your mouth, boy, and listen. And like, oh, man, that must be the most beautiful thing anyone ever said, ever. And Hannity's like, yes, sir, sir. I mean, it's Hackworth. What are you going to do, dude? Shut up, Hannity. He called him boy. Shut your mouth, boy, and listen. And then what did he say? I mean, fighting in urban warfare, pinned down, getting sniped at, getting blown up in 130 degrees out there, dying for nothing, for a bunch of lies, destabilize everything. Again, his entire spin, sticking up for the enlisted men, protecting them from unnecessary wars, is what he was trying to do. So anybody who says, oh, yeah, no, everybody believed, everybody was in on it, everybody thought so, wrong. Yeah, everybody who wanted some power. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrenSCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrenSCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrenSCoffee.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys. I'm Scott Horton. Well, I'm just reminiscing about the Iraq War here. Uh, but this goes to a discussion that was going on in the chat room yesterday and is important. We're talking about it at any time. Um, the real question, why we got into that war, why the government started that war, invaded Iraq in 2003. And, of course... You know, basically the way it works is there are a lot of reasons and none of them are good enough by a long shot. I mean, in one way you could sum it up as the world was sick and tired of the sanctions, but they didn't want to rehabilitate Saddam. So if they were going to have to lift the sanctions on the Iraqi people, they're going to have to have a regime change. Otherwise, their policy looked stupid and like it failed. That's one thing. The other thing, as Dave Chappelle put it, try to kill my father. Which, I don't think that was really it. I think Bush's personal problem was he wanted to be tougher than his dad. He wanted to prove that he was tougher than his dad. And that he knew, he really reminds me of Rand Paul a lot, George W. Bush. He knew that what his father did wrong was stop in 1991 in the first Iraq war. When he should have gone all the way to Baghdad and deposed Saddam. Then he would have been in the middle of a war still during the election of 1992 and therefore would have beat Bill Clinton and would have got his full two terms. And psh, who cares about all the dead Iraqis and Americans and whoever else, because what does that matter? What matters is his father would have got reelected, and so he knew better, and he was going to show his old man that he was tougher and he was smarter, and he was going to get two terms because he was going to be in the middle of a war, goddammit, when it came to his reelection. Poor Fallujans, man. And anyway... So that was, you know, I think a big part of, of George Bush's thing. He explained to Mickey Herskowitz, oh, this reminds me, uh, type in path of war timeline. It's by my wife, 
Larissa Alexandrovna. Path of War Timeline. And it'll come right up. It's full of great links and explain all the different things. One of the very first things on that list is Governor Bush explaining to his kept biographer, Miss Mickey Herskowitz, who I think they ended up firing and replacing. But at the time, and maybe because of this, because he wrote that Bush told him, yeah, what you want to do is find a weak country that you can start a war with so you can be in the middle of a war and get two terms and then you can get your domestic agenda done. And he just said it's plain as day. That's what you want to do. Because that's the kind of thinking that George Bush does and including the not thinking that you're not supposed to say that part of it out loud publicly, stupid. And that was him. And, of course, Karl Rove, that was his interest, was in getting Bush reelected and being in the middle of a war. Simple as that. Then, of course, you got Bruce Jackson and Lockheed. They had a huge interest in maintaining an expansionist American foreign policy for whatever reason you could possibly come up with. And they had bankrolled the Committee for NATO Expansion in the 1990s, and they bankrolled the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq as well. And as Richard Cummings showed in his great work for Playboy.com, which you can find at CorpWatch.org, and actually you can find it on my blog, ScottHorton.org as well, um, you know, to protect your virgin eyes. Oh, and you know what? They took it down from Playboy.com a long time a long time ago anyway. You can find it on my site and at CorpWatch.org. It's called the Lockheed Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Lockheed Stock and Two Smoking Barrels from 2007 by Richard Cummings. And it's about how, guess who? Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, Stephen Hadley, Scooter Libby, uh, uh, Douglas Fife, Eric Edelman, uh, 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 Abram Shulsky, and uh, Michael Rubin, and Michael Ledeen, and virtually, and I, I may be overstating it t- a tiny bit, but I believe that's right, that virtually every single neocon, oh, I, I, I'm, I left out Wormser. Uh, every single neocon in the first, in the, you know, uh, first Bush Jr. administration had a tie to Lockheed. Which, it doesn't mean that's where they got all their ideas from, but it means they sure forged a real alliance there. As Andrew Coburn puts it, he says, well, the neoconservative movement really is where the Israel lobby meets the military industrial complex. Think about it. Go back in history. The Council on Foreign Relations was created by the WASPs, who controlled the banks and the oil companies. And that was their, you know, think tank haven. That was their, you know, center of power. And the neocons came and made all their own think tanks and grew up around it. And uh, the military-industrial complex, and the neocons, of course, you know, just representing the interests of Israel. But the new military-industrial complex that grew up after World War II... The CFR was created after World War One. The new military-industrial complex that grew up after World War II had a lot of wealth growing up in Texas and in California and all over the place, wherever the arms, Washington State, wherever the arms manufacturers were from, and they had somewhat different interests at different times. They're usually to the right of the old Eastern establishment, but they needed intellectuals to come up with justifications for selling all their big-ticket items, and that's where they found the neocons. And the neocons said, you fund our think tanks, and we'll get our pro-Israel foreign policy, and you guys will sell airplanes. And that was the deal that they made. And that's basically the neoconservative movement that we're stuck with now. 
And I mean, you can just go and look it up on, you know, whatever watchdog groups or whatever. They show who funds all these think tanks. It's all a matter of public record where they all get their money from. And it's Lockheed and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman is a huge part of it. And then, of course, last but not least, it's the Likud party in Israel, Ariel Sharon and Benjamin Netanyahu and the right wing nationalist expansionists in Israel who would like to dominate the entire Middle East someday. Who refuse to define any eastern border on that country, even at the Jordan River. Uh, much less the green line. And. Uh. It's all there in David Wimser's clean break proposal for Benjamin Netanyahu in 1996. Uh, I would urge you to read Dan Sanchez, I think, has the, the best and the most recent kind of versions and takes on these um, on these important articles. The first one. Well, anyway, well, there's two. There's there's the clean break and then coping with crumbling states. And then Dan Sanchez has great recent analysis just from last year about these and and really good stuff at antiwar.com. The first one is Seizing the Chaos, and the second one is... No, maybe that's the second one is Seizing the Chaos. Oh, it's From Clean Break to Dirty Wars. That's the first one. From Clean Break to Dirty Wars, and then Seizing the Chaos. Both of those by Dan Sanchez. Read them together. That's about uh, David Wimser's proposals in 1996 to smash the Middle East, starting with Saddam Hussein in order supposedly to weaken, get this, to weaken the Ayatollah by getting rid of Saddam. Yeah, you're real smart there, David. With a name like Wormser, you think of the Revenge of the Nerds, and he must be brilliant, right, Wormser? Wormser? Um, but no, he's a stupid idiot. Dick Cheney's foreign policy advisor. Dumb ass. And anyway, um, what they thought was they will weaken Iran and therefore weaken Syria and weaken Hezbollah. It didn't work out that way at all, but again, they're stupid idiots, these neocons, but that was their interest. That's what they wanted to do. And um, if you, uh, I'll tell you what, the best thing you could do probably on this, if you want to know about it, would be to type in uh, Scott Horton 16 articles Iraq, or just Scott Horton 16 Iraq, and it'll come up. Because uh, I put out a bunch of tweets um, on a whole bunch of these articles, and Dan Sanchez made a little storefy about him there or whatever, but it's, uh, and it's a lot more than 16, in fact. Uh, kept adding them and adding them. There's a ton of great articles. Just type in my name, Scott Horton, 16 articles, Iraq, and you'll find this thing by Dan Sanchez where I link to article after article after article after article, all about the neocons and the Likudniks and how, in fact, they even manufactured bogus intelligence in English in Ariel Sharon's office in Tel Aviv and funneled it straight into the stovepipe to Dick Cheney's office, to George Bush's ears, and then yours through his speeches as shown by uh, Bamford, Dreyfus, Borger. All right, back in a minute. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com
Hey, all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, guys, so welcome back. I'm Scott. You know, I was going to talk about all different things today, but once I started on the Colin Powell anniversary thing, I guess I just started making points about Iraq. But, you know, someone asked me in the chat room earlier, hey, what was that interview that you did where you ran down everything that happened? And uh, like I was saying, it's Jason Stapleton. Uh, he's a libertarian, I believe a kind of former conservative uh, becoming much, much more libertarian now, uh, radio host. And I think he may be a veteran as well. Anyway, what made it such a great interview was he asked good questions. Wait, 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 hold it right there. Are you saying this or you're saying that? And this kind of thing, which put me on my best behavior, where I got to really make myself clear and, and try to explain exactly what I mean in a way where I don't misunderstand me, understand me. Um, and I think it turned out pretty well. Um, so if anybody wants to listen to that, it's, uh, just my name, Scott Horton and Jason Stapleton, and it'll come right up for you there. But I guess, so now I ought to try to do basically the same version of the same thing kind of again, if I can, unless you guys want to call in and talk about whatever you want. Uh, that's fine too. Ask me questions along these lines, something that you'd like to clarify. But otherwise, I guess what I would like to say real quick and pull out a map. If you need a map, someone tweeted me this morning, their five-year-old likes to look at the map. Uh, while I'm talking about Middle East policy and stuff. That's really cool, although <laughs> it's kind of rough material for a five-year-old, but maybe you got a tough five-year-old. What do I know? Uh, anyway, but so here's some history. There's Iran, Persia, right? Britain and the Soviet Union occupied it during World War II, and then uh, the Soviets withdrew. The Brits tried to keep it, but they kind of sort of lost control, and the Iranians created a parliament and elected overthrew the Shah, their British-installed dictator, and um, elected a guy named Mossadegh to be the prime minister. And he didn't even really nationalize the oil. He just demanded the Brits pay him a little. You know, why should the Brits get all of the money from Iranian oil being produced? And the Iranian state, the Iranian people get absolutely nothing out of it, basically. And so, but that was intolerable. So America and Britain overthrew him in 1953 and reinstalled the Shah. And the Shah was America's sock puppet fascist dictator uh, in charge of Iran from 1953 through 1979 for 26 years. But then what happened was there was a revolution, not a coup d'etat, a real revolution. And basically the people of Iran rose up and overthrew the Shah and his government. He was sick with cancer and dying anyway, and his regime was falling apart. And they overthrew him and... Uh, power was seized by the Ayatollah Khomeini and uh, Khomeini, I should say. Khomeini is the guy in charge now. Um, and uh, and then, of course, there was the riot and the hostages taken at the embassy and all that crisis um, where even though Reagan had a covert relationship with Iran through the 1980s, basically there's official enmity from with Iran ever since then, since 79. Well... Once they accomplished that war in 79, 
uh, or that uh, Revolution 79. Jimmy Carter gave the green light. This is according to Alexander Haig uh, doing a fact-finding mission to Saudi Arabia for George uh, for Ronald Reagan upon Reagan taking office. Jimmy Carter, and I think credibly, quite credibly, reported by Robert Perry um, at ConsortiumNews.com that Jimmy Carter gave Saddam Hussein the green light to attack Iran, to invade Iran in order to contain, or they were trying initially, to destroy the Iranian Shiite revolution and and uh, put it down. And Saddam thought he'd be greeted as a liberator and everything, <laughs> like an idiot. And they fought to a standstill, and a million people were killed in the Iran-Iraq war through the 1980s. And it was America and Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and uh, Qatar and uh, you know UAE and all the Gulf states who backed Saddam against the Iranians to contain that Shiite revolution. Uh, Saddam Hussein ruling Iraq, which was a majority Shiite Arab country. Uh, the the Iranians are Persians, not Arabs, but they're ruled by the Shia. And in in Iraq, the Shia Arabs were the sixty percent majority. The Kurds and the Sunni Arabs each 20%. And the Kurds are Sunnis too, by the way. But they're a different ethnicity and live up in the north. But anyway, so uh, Saddam was a Sunni and ruling a secular, nationalist, fascist dictatorship out of Baghdad that ruled over the Shiite ma- uh, majority. And in fact, they fought against Iran for Saddam in the war. Not that they had much choice, um, but it wasn't a, a purely sectarian war. Um but obviously, you know, it's tinged with that. And then, uh, and of course, Ronald Reagan, let me not neglect to say, Ronald Reagan gave him chemical weapons and helped him target the Iranian troops, which were just, you know, basically child conscripts out there unarmed in the field, and uh, and uh, helped Saddam target them uh, with chemical weapons and gas them all to death. You can read all about it in Foreign Affairs at foreignpolicy.com. Um, a great piece by Matthew Aid from a couple of years ago came out about it. But there's all the mainstream sources you could possibly need to know that for an absolute fact. Um, even while Saddam Hussein murdered 100,000 Kurds in the Anfal campaign in 1984 and then was using gas on the Kurds as late as 1988 as well, they didn't care about that. And yes, it's true, Saddam, uh, Saddam, sorry, I confuse them sometimes. Ronald Reagan was also selling missiles through Israel to Iran at the same time in order to make money, get hostages released, and bankroll the Contra death squads in Nicaragua and El Salvador. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so, um, <laughs> it's kind of a long convoluted story. But then, uh, so the war came to an end, the Iran-Iraq war came to an end in 1989, but then Saddam was flat broke. And oil prices were so low because of cahoots between America, the Saudis, and the GCC um, that Saddam couldn't repay his war debts. In fact, here I have the clip. How much time do I have? I have just enough time to play this clip of Dick Cheney explaining to Bill Crystal what was Saddam's gripe in 1991, 1990-91 when he decided to invade Kuwait and make himself an enemy of the U.S. Saddam had been throwing his weight around. Right. The Iran-Iraq war had ended. Economically, he was in some difficulty. Um, he had accused the Kuwaitis, for example, of undercutting the oil price, and uh, that hurt him because he was almost totally dependent on oil revenues for his government. Stop mumbling, and, uh, he'd you actually moved kid. troops what? to the down to the Kuwaiti border. Right. And uh, the advice we got from our friends in the area was, don't do anything to upset him. 
this is just a show of force. He's trying to negotiate a better deal on oil prices and so forth, and uh, he'll never invade. And that's what we got from the region. Uh, at one point, the United Arab Emirates, in the run-up to the actual invasion, they were concerned. And uh, they called and wanted... Uh... Anyway, point being, Saddam was just trying to pay them back the money that they had loaned him to fight the war against Iran for them, especially the Saudis, where all the Shia Saudis live on top of the oil. And that can be a problematic problem from the point of view of the Saudi royal family. And so Saddam, and it, this is all in, uh, thank you again, Chelsea Manning, everyone doing 35 years in the brig for your government sins, liberated the documents finally and proved uh, the discussion between April Glaspie and Saddam Hussein, uh, where she gave him, go ahead, the green light to invade Kuwait. Because his case was basically right against America's allies in the region. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson, Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all. Welcome back. Yeah, so then what happened was uh, April Glaspie, on instructions from James Baker, told Saddam, yeah, we don't really care if you invade Kuwait. What do we care? And not just her, a couple other flunkies. Uh, one testified before the Congress on C-SPAN, and there were some other indications I forget now off the top of my head. But anyway, they went ahead and told him, yeah, what do we care if you invade Kuwait? And then they decided, hey, this could be a great excuse to conquer the Middle East. Let's do it. So they did it. So they lied their asses off, and they uh, told the king of Saudi Arabia that Saddam had lined up all his tanks on their border and was prepared to invade Saudi Arabia and conquer Riyadh and the entire peninsula if the U.S. didn't stop him. And the king bought it. It was a total lie. And in fact, Russian satellite footage uh, was uh, purchased by Canadian uh, news sources who published them. There's nothing but empty desert out there. whole thing was fake. Anyway, so that was the pretext for war there, that Saddam was, uh, not just that he'd invaded Kuwait, but that he was going to invade Saudi Arabia. And so they started that war to drive him back out again. And, uh, but then they stopped because, and in fact, I gotta play it because really nobody says it better than Dick Cheney. Well, I guess I might, but, uh, where the hell is, uh, the Cheney 94 clip. Yeah, it'd be better if I could find the clip by simply looking at it. Where the hell is it? You know what? It's missing. It used to be right here, didn't it? Huh. Well, anyway, so Cheney says in 1994, uh, interviewed uh, by uh, C-SPAN at the American Enterprise Institute, hey, how come you didn't go all the way to Baghdad? Because everybody here at the American Enterprise Institute says you should have gone all the way to Baghdad. And Cheney says, well, if we did, the Iranians might have inherited the South, where all the Shiites live. And the predominantly Sunni parts in the west of the country could have spun off to join with Syria, which is not ruled by Sunnis, but has a majority Sunni population to it. This is exactly what's happening right now. And then he said, and the independent Kurdistan uh, could cause major problems with our allies, the Turks. We'd have been bogged down fighting in urban combat 
in this desert country, uh, you know, trying to set up a new government, unable to hunt down Saddam Hussein, you know, without great difficulty. And we just decided it wasn't worth our guys to do that. It was, it was a huge risk to do it. And I think we made the right call. And it's just perfect. It's exactly right. And then it's the exact policy that he reversed in the incoming administration after, oh, don't let me skip the Clinton years. Clinton, Kept the blockade, the full-scale United Nations blockade against Iraq, which starved a million people to death, including half of them children or more. A price which Madeleine Albright, of course, explained. We think the price is worth it. And so uh, they kept that on. Iraq War 1.5, one and a half, all through the Clinton years for eight years straight, bombing the so-called no-fly zones on average every other day for eight years straight and enforcing a blockade after Colin Powell and the first Bush administration had deliberately, and they admit it, deliberately targeted their sewage, their water, their electricity, their civilian population infrastructure. What, they're all just a bunch of towel heads who don't have a right to live. Don't worry about it. And they deliberately targeted their human infrastructure of the country there. And then they kept the blockade on. They wouldn't even let them import any chlorine for their water. Because, oh, no, you're going to use it for chemical weapons. Like they didn't already still have whatever Saddam, uh, you know, George H., uh, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush had given them before. Oh, it's that they destroyed it all by the end of 91. Sorry, forget that. Um, but in the name of weapons of mass destruction, in fact, they admit it, in the name of regime change, we're going to keep the blockade on until Saddam is gone. It's not even about weapons of mass destruction anymore. It's just about we will never let Saddam Hussein be the leader of a normal country in any other sense in relationship to the international community. He was whipping boy for the United Nations, whipping boy for the American uh, empire and our military industrial complex and everything else. And uh, so then when Junior came into power... Uh, Cheney brought in the neocons, and I named them before, but I'll say it again. It's, uh, you know, basically Cheney and then what Colin Powell later called a separate government inside the government. And it was David Wormser, Scooter Libby, Stephen Hadley, uh, well, I should say in the vice president's office, on the National Security Council, in the Pentagon, in the State Department. These were the guys. Um, Libby, Hadley, Wumser, uh, John Bolton, um, and then, of course, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, Douglas Fife, Abram Shulsky, Eric Edelman, uh, Michael Rubin, and Michael Ledeen, and uh, Michael Maloof. And was it, was it Maloof? Maloof? No, Maloof, that's the money cup. That's different. Not Maloof. Is it Maloof? <laughs> I forget now. One of these clowns that was in the had the counterterrorism policy evaluation group making up uh, Saddam Osama lies with Douglas Fife in there. And anyway, um, um, they're the neocons, ex-Trotskyites who became Reaganites, basically. This was an argument in the chat room yesterday. Neocon should mean new kind of conservative, right? Like neoliberal means a new kind of liberal. But it doesn't. It's not, you know, language isn't perfect. In this case, neoconservative means new conservative. Again, not new kind, just new. It's a biographical designation. In this case, of 
almost universally former communists, former Trotskyites, who, of course, they were Americans and Trotskyites, so they sided with the U.S. in the Cold War against the Stalinist Soviet Union, right? You get the Trotsky-Stalin split there, and plus they were Americans, so that's convenient, you know. But anyway, they put Israel first, they always have, and uh, we're talking about, you know, 60 or 75 people in the country, uh, right? The, dis- the ideological descendants of Norman Podhoritz, Irving Kristol, Albert Wolstetter, and Leo Strauss. And then, of course, William F. Buckley, who was not himself a neocon. He was just a con. I don't think he had ever grown up as a leftist. But he hired all former communists to write for the National Review. Sidney Hook and James Burnham and Whitaker Chambers and on and on and on. They were all a bunch of ex-Trotskyites because they hated the Soviet Union and supported Cold War more than any real conservatives did. They weren't too worried about communism in that sense, uh, the way these former communists were. And so... um, uh, but now when you're talking about, so there's really two kinds of neocons, the writers and the government employees. And the government employees, they're always the deputy assistant secretary of something. Regular people don't usually hear their names. But, um, you know, you may be familiar with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, the American Enterprise Institute, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, the Center for Security Policy. Now the John Hay Institute is their new one. Of course, before the Project for a New American Century, which wrote up rebuilding America's defenses, promoting, you know, empire throughout the Middle East, especially, and full-spectrum dominance over the planet, etc. Um they're the neocons, man. That's who they are. And so there's always kind of a weird question of definition here, because is Bill Crystal a neocon? Actually, his father, Irving Crystal, was the former communist turned right-wing warmonger. So Bill Crystal grew up right-wing warmonger. Bill Crystal was never a communist. But he's the son of Irving Crystal, and he's the quintessential neocon, and so we bend the definition for him, right? But Max Boot, former commie. <laughs> you know... Uh, with most of these guys, it's clearer. Marco Rubio. Now, Marco Rubio, as far as I understand, is not a former leftist. I could be wrong about that. In fact, wait, did someone correct me about that? Was he some kind of former leftist? Maybe he was. But anyway, he's hardcore with the neocon program now, right? There's no slight discrepancy like there is with Ted Cruz. It's, you know, full-on neoconservatism. So you could maybe call Rubio a fourth-generation neocon or something like that. But... Hannity is not, right? Hannity is just a blowhard conservative, but he was never a commie. John Bolton, best friends, uh, Newt Gingrich, best friends with the neocons, but not neocons, just right-wing nationalists, because they never were commies before. That's the deal. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. After the show, I'm going to look to, I'd like to find that Hackworth Hannity YouTube if it's out there. I think, I'm pretty sure that where he's saying, close your mouth, boy, was from TV, not the radio. Although it might have been on the radio and I'm conflating it a little bit. 
But anyway, let's see if I can find it after the show. So I'm sorry. I do go on and on. But that's why you listen, because you love listening to me go on and on. So here's the point that I'm really getting at is, uh, well, there's lots of them. But one of them is that the neocons are stupid, as I was referring to earlier. And what was really going on, as the Israelis were lying us into war, as Osama bin Laden was tap dancing with glee at the prospect of America invading Iraq in order to depose, quote-unquote, socialist infidel Saddam Hussein for him, bog us down in a quagmire, radicalize a generation, accomplish all the rest of his goals, the Ayatollah Khomeini had sent Ahmed Chalabi, the Jordanian slash Iraqi huckster banker, tinker, banker, neocon spy, as Bob Dreyfus called him. And there's just no denying it. I mean, hell, uh, his headquarters was in Tehran. Seemed like it might have been obvious. Purloin letter kind of obvious. The Ayatollah sent Chalabi to lie to the American neoconservatives and tell them that if America gets rid of Saddam Hussein, it'll hurt Iran and benefit Israel. And that's what he told them. And he was lying to them. And there's an article that'll blow your mind called How Chalabi Conned the Neocons. I admit it's in Salon.com. I'm sorry. However, Salon.com used to run some good journalism back a long time ago before they turned themselves into the Daily Mail. And uh, included is this one, and it's by a Financial Times writer. Maybe The Economist, but I think of Financial Times writer. He just happened to write this one for Salon. It's real journalism. Trust me. I know. Again, I'm sorry. Double extra super disclaimer. A freaking Salon.com. But I don't care. It's a badass article. Go read it. It's called How Chalabi Conned the Neocons. And it makes it absolutely clear that he knew all along that all his promises to the neocons about an alliance with Israel, an Iraqi alliance with Israel and compliant Shia and an oil pipeline and a water pipeline from Mosul to Haifa and all this was just completely blowing smoke. And yet Richard Pearl and all of his co-conspirators inside of our government, they believed Chalabi because they're stupid idiots. And that was the main reason that they did what they did in pushing this country into war. And then we saw the immediate result, which was that the Shia were done being compliant. And they decided that they liked this democracy thing. So one man, one vote, majority rule, huh? Let's do it. And all of the neocons' plans came to nothing. And so what happened in real life was Iran won basically half the country, you know, as far as landmass, all the land from Kuwait, from Baghdad to Kuwait in the east of Iraq is now the new Iraqi Shiistan under almost total Iranian domination and influence uh, through the Dawa party through the what's left of the Supreme Islamic Council and their army, the Bada Brigade, and the various other Iranian-backed Shiite militias. And George Bush fought an eight-year war for them to kick all the Sunnis out of Baghdad. And then they, of course, told America, thanks a lot. Now uh, we're the majority and we're allied with the country next door and we don't need you anymore, so get the hell out. 
But meanwhile, they pushed all the Sunnis out of Baghdad and into the arms of the Islamic State. And the Iranian-backed Shiite government told them all, hey, you guys oppressed us all this time. Now you've got the worst part of Iraq. Go and rot and die in the desert. We don't give a damn about you. We defeated you. You're done. And froze them out. And so they're just ripe for revolution, man. And and how are the tribal leaders ever going to, you know, keep the jihadists at bay under those conditions as it just festered for years? And, uh, you know, as the Al-Qaeda in Iraq and all the jihadist movements had grown up during Iraq War II to help the Sunni tribal leaders resist the American occupation. Then... And of course, as Dick Cheney said, independent Kurdistan up there that America keeps begging to stay within the so-called Iraqi state in alliance with southern Iraqi Shiistan, uh, but which is, you know, always on the verge of coming apart there. Um, and then Obama on the highest treason ever since Benedict Arnold, seriously, like, I don't know how else you could put it. You know, George Bush quite stupidly, George W. Bush quite stupidly gave Western Iraq to the uh, Al-Qaeda guys to be their jihadistan to practice and train and grow and get experience and, and, and grow their movement and all this stuff for years and years and years because he's just the dumbest piece of shit ever be the president of the United States. It's just unbelievable. But Barack Obama deliberately chose to side with the Osama bin Ladenite suicide bomber head chopper jihadists in Libya and in Syria. When the veterans from Bush's Iraq War II came home to those countries, o Obama sided with them. And again, because that's what Israel wanted. And and Saudi, too, but do I repeat myself? And uh, so that's led to, of course, the war in Libya in 2011 and the half a regime change in Syria and America, Saudi, Turkish, Qatari support for the Sunni insurgency in Syria for the last five years, benefiting virtually only al-Qaeda in Iraq, now known as its Syrian branch, the al-Nusra Front and Arar al-Sham, loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda still in Pakistan, and the Islamic State, which is still just al-Qaeda in Iraq, only it's the Iraqi-dominated faction, and is no longer loyal to Zawahiri and has gone ahead and declared their caliphate. But it's still nothing but al-Qaeda in Iraq. And, you know, there would, there would still be a huge al-Qaeda in Iraq movement in western Iraq right now if Obama had done nothing. But the reason there's a caliphate is because he sided with Osama at the same time he was killing him. Basically, spring 2011, he's killing Osama. And yeah, my wife is a real-ass investigative reporter. And yeah, she had most of Hirsch's story almost immediately after that happened. It did happen there and then, although much probably much closer to Hirsch's version um, than the one the government told. But anyway... Um, at the same time, they're killing Osama. They're siding with his legions across the Middle East and growing them, spreading them down into Mali and into Nigeria. Boko Haram already existed, but now they're buddies with the jihadist veterans of the Libyan war and that much worse for it. Um, and, uh, 
and they've created the caliphate, the excuse to keep this entire war going. And as as uh, I almost call them Osama, as Obama put it to Jeffrey Goldberg in 2012, I've t- said this a million times. The article is called "As President, I Don't Bluff." It's uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, Corporal Goldberg interviewing Barack Obama, and he says, yes, that's right, Jeffrey Goldberg, if we get rid of Assad, that would be a great way to weaken Iran. And why? Consolation Prize. We actually fought a whole war for them in Iraq. So we can't start the Iraq war back over again for Osama against the Shiites. We just fought an eight-year war for, can we? Well, but at least we can get rid of Assad, and which is, of course, what they want to do all along, because Assad supports Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is more powerful than ever, ever since America and Israel forced the Syrian army out of southern Lebanon in 2005, where they were actually marginalizing Hezbollah. But anyway, um, and so on the mess goes. And so that's the short history of the Iraq war, What all the history basically <laughs> leading up to it, um, how it was fought and how it led to the current caliphate. And the current excuse for the further expansion of the American empire. And it's a hell of a thing. And I think it all proves only one thing, which is that we got to stop this. We have to stop our government from continuing to do this because they have, as they have shown, they can continue on like this forever until we make them stop. They will just keep printing money and they will just keep killing people. They will just keep saying, look, an Arab with a rifle. We've got to do something. At the very least, sending robot assassins, which maybe is safe for the robots, but is dangerous for us in creating blowback and motivation uh, for people to commit terrorism against us. And all for nothing. All only to satisfy corrupt interests, not the safety and security of the American people, not our national interests like you imagine you might try to pursue if you were the one who was a senator or a president. Oh, man, it's over. All right. Well, anyway, see you all tomorrow, or, I mean, Sunday or Monday or whatever. Thanks.